Is this on, Phil? There we go. Today we're going to talk about Christian giving. And as we just read, chapters uh, 8 and 9, we're going to talk about what does it mean. We're going to talk about some very practical things. Most of the verses, some of the verses that we just read through, we're going to go back and look at them and see how they apply to us as Christians, to the body of Christ as a whole, to a church, just to give us some understanding. The reason why this was, I felt, laid on my heart and why I think it's so important for Golding's Church is that over the years, definitely since I've been here, since 2007, Golding's Church has been a church that has constantly been giving so much. And I think not to make us proud or anything, but we have given above our numbers, if you like. Um, what do I mean by that? Where Paul was talking about the Macedonian church giving more than what they could actually afford and giving generously and abundantly out of love. Well, as you know, you know, our brother John will talk about more as we go on the work that's been done in Pakistan. And that was a lot. That was a big building project, very big building project. And this church has done tremendously, you know, well and being a blessing to the saints there in Pakistan and giving praise and thanksgiving to God for his blessing to us. And so this is a very big part of the ministry that we have here at Goldings is giving. And so that's the reason why it's important for us to really understand and have a better understanding what does it mean as Christians, as a church, in giving for the Lord. Okay, so we're going to look about this in a few different ways. First of all, we're going to look at to whom and for what reason. To whom do we give and for what reasons do we give? First of all, let's deal with this one pretty quick. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one to render unto Caesars what is Caesars. So some of the money that is given for offerings here at Golding Church goes to Caesar. We pay taxes. We pay bills. So that's, that's some of the money goes for that. And those are the words of Christ. When you have bills, you have taxes to pay, then that's what you do. And Jesus says that in Matthew twenty two twenty one. So that one's, we, we've dealt with that one. That's where some of the money goes, to Caesar. Number two, we pay our pastor. We are very fortunate, very blessed that we can pay our pastor full time. Not a lot of churches can do that. Maybe some can do that, but they choose not to do that. Well, biblically, it is very right that to pay the, the, you know, a pastor or an elder who is serving full-time in the ministry, that the church should undertake the, the, uh, the uh, sacrifice to support and to be a support for uh, the pastor, the elder, or, and his family. Here it says, in the same way, we read in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, it says, in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, there's other scriptures that deal with the same uh, uh, understanding that uh, men who are, who are preaching the gospel, serving in ministry full-time, they are to receive you know, support from the church for that work. So that's, a, that's easy enough dealt with. We do pay our pastor, and, uh, and he's, well, I've, I haven't been around, some Christians have been around a lot longer than me, so I've been around a little while as far as being a born-again believer and have been around the church of, of, of God 
for a while. But I can say, and I can say, well, Jerry's not here, so he's not uh, going to get big-headed. But he's probably the hardest-working pastor that I know and that I've ever seen. Uh, he's very, very, uh, he's just a hard-working man. He loves the people of Golding so much, and there's not too much that, he, that it can be asked of him. Uh, he's constantly visiting and supporting, praying, encouraging. Uh, I, I'm sure most of us here has received visits of some sort from Jerry and, and encouraging. He obviously pays a lot of attention to younger believers and weaker believers and spending more time with those types of believers. So he does work tirelessly. The third thing we're going to look at, the, where our money goes as a church, it goes to the saints. It goes to saints at home and away. Okay? It goes to saints here primarily First and foremost, it goes to saints here at Goldings, and also we know it also goes to the saints, i.e. believers, Christians around the world. We'll look at those things uh, more closely. First of all, first and foremost, the gathering, you know, the, the gathering of offering, the incoming, the income of the church should primarily be for the believers within the community of the church. And we see an example of that in Acts chapter 2. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That was the beginning of the early church as they came together. After the day of Pentecost, there was such a great growth within the church. And they spent literally, practically, almost all their time together as a community. And there were some in the community that had needs and they were going without. So... The ministry of the church straight away was to be a support, a financial support, physical support in the church. Also, we see in Acts chapter 4, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the cells, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Again, we see the example of the church supporting, blessing, and being there for each other. Again, in Acts chapter 6, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, that means the Jews who were from Greek countries, uh, the Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there is a perfect example describing to us what was taking place in the church at the beginning. Everybody was being looked after. Widows were being made sure that they were being looked after, supported, and they were having everything that they needed. Most you know, importantly, food, of course. So, giving to the saints at home. I mean, I have some, you know, some examples in my life. Uh, the suit that I'm wearing today was a blessing from a dear lady who's no longer with us, Vera Bates. I can call out her name. She's not here. So, uh, she, blessed, she, she bought this suit for me. What a wonderful gift. The shoes that I'm wearing, I'm not going to call out their names, but they were, they blessed me. I guess they saw me with my old raggedy black shoes, and they thought, I want to bless Jim with some shoes. So someone in the church bought me, you know, gave me money to buy me a pair of shoes. What a blessing that was to me. 
No one asked him. I didn't, you know, no one said anything. So what a blessing that is. And I know, obviously from being an elder, uh, knowing what kind of, how the money is being distributed within the church, I know that there are many people in Goldings at, at home, not in a way, many people right here at Goldings, folks that are not here who have been blessed financially and, and been supported in many ways by the church here in many different ways, many different ways. Whole families have been supported and blessed in different ways. And that's what the finances primarily is for. That's why we give. And as we go on, we're going to see more and more how this develops. We're thinking that, oh, it just seems to be some kind of community and we're just kind of sharing our money. Trust me, it's going to get a lot deeper. Just bear with me, stick with me. This gets a lot more spiritually deeper as we go on. But the fact is, we are here for one another. So we don't, basically some people may may be wondering, where does the money go? Well, we're going to follow the money now. We're following the money. Where does the money go? First and foremost, we've got to pay Caesar. It goes to taxes and it goes to bills. We also pay our pastor, and here we have money that is available if we have brothers and sisters, families that are in need and they are in lack, then money is made available to support one another. Praise God for that. And I say that with, you know, you think that's something very simple, but it's not. It's not. You think that's something that would just naturally take place in every church you go to, but it doesn't. I'm not saying this because we're perfect. We are far from perfect, okay? But I'm just giving you a testimony of what I have seen, how people have been blessed. But it's not a given thing. There are many churches that find it difficult to part with their money at all. So, but we are indeed meant to be liberal with our money. We are meant to be ready to give. Here, we're looking at giving to saints away. So these are brothers and sisters, Christians around the world that are not here with us, that are not a part of this particular church, Golding's Church. It says here in Acts chapter 11, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Wow, praise the Lord. Praise God. We have a a great example right there in the Bible of how we as a church are are to act, are to use our money. We know of sisters and brothers of, of, of saints around the world who are suffering and that they need help. Guess what we can do? We can help them. We can help them. His name's not Barnabas or Saul. His name's John. Uh, but we've sent John halfway across the world to Pakistan with Grant uh, uh, once. And what did they do? They took money. They took finances. They took support. They took encouragement. They took things from this church to take to that church so that the brothers and sisters there, their needs could be met. And praise be to God. That's the, that's, that's the calling of God upon the church. And here we have it very clearly in Scripture. So, we just give God thanks for this opportunity. As we will see here, there's a lot involved. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read again. They urgently pleaded with us 
for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. That's how we should be. We should be urgently desiring to share in this work. The people in Macedonia, the church in Macedonia, it wasn't something they thought, okay, oh yeah, I think we could help a little bit. We'll just throw a little bit your way. They urgently desired to do that. It wasn't just an add-on that they thought, okay, we've got a little bit of surplus. We'll just throw a little bit that way because we can afford it. No, the Bible says they couldn't really afford it. They actually gave out of their lack. Why? Because they wanted to serve, because they know, as we see, that they're not only serving those people, they're actually glorifying God. Amen? So, we see here again in 2 Corinthians 9, we've read the Apostle Apostle Paul said to them, There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help. And I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians. So here in the first verse, we see it's the Macedonians who were eager and, and desirous to help the people. Uh, but now we see the Corinthian church, Paul is saying, we have no need to write to you about this service. Again, to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help as well. So here we have good, clear, biblical instructions and guidance on how we as a church and as believers should handle our money. That's interesting. Okay, oh yes. Uh, right. Okay. Now, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, we see these clear instructions on how Christians should give. Okay? And how Christians should not give. So we're going to look at here, again, at a few verses. It gives us some understanding on how we should give. Okay? We're going to look a bit more closer at that. Also, we're going to look at how we should not give. Because it gives us, it explains to us here how we, on a Sunday morning or when you get an opportunity to give, there's things that you should do and there's things that you shouldn't do. Here, look, look at some of the things it says, things that we should not do, how Christians should not give. It says in chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, or under compulsion. So this is a way not that we're not to give. If you feel reluctant that, you know what, don't really, don't really want to give, don't really want to, but people are looking at me. Guess what? You shouldn't give. If you feel that, you know, I don't know, it says in the Old Testament somewhere that I, I got to give something, you know, so I better give it or else, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me if I don't. Guess what? You shouldn't give. Because those are two reasons that you should not give. If you don't want to give, then you shouldn't give. Because your heart is not in giving, is it? If you feel under compulsion to give, then you shouldn't give. Because again, we know that our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is not about rules, it's not about religion, it's not about... Law is about our relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And so everything in your relationship with Christ is all to do with your heart towards Him. It's all to do with your heart. I, I, and you, you can be assured that it doesn't matter if you, how much you drop into the offering plate. If you are giving reluctantly and you are, feel like you're being forced to give, you're not going to be blessed from that. 
You're not going to, to feel like you've, you've glorified God. You're not going to go away thinking that, you know, you've helped someone. You're just going to go away thinking, okay, I ticked the box. I ticked the box. And it doesn't matter how much you put in. You will still go away thinking to yourself, I ticked the box. At least I did that. And that's not what God would have. Therefore, we can say that tithing, 10%, is not demanded in the New Testament. Now, this is the point I really don't want to step on anyone's toes, because I know we all have different you know, traditions, if you like, or different ways of understanding. Uh, but tithing, you'll go to a lot of churches, and it's very big in America, very big in Africa, very big in a lot of churches, uh, that you'll get ministers stand up here and preach that you must tithe. You must give at least 10% of your, of your income to, into the offering. You must. They will say, you must. And if you don't, then your finances will be cursed. And the reason why they say that is because of Malachi chapter 3. Well, tithing was required in the Old Testament law, and if the tithe was not dealt with properly, instead of blessings, one would be cursed. And we see that in Malachi chapter 3. God says, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse. You're a whole nation. There they will throw, they will take that verse and they will say, because of what this says, if you don't tithe, you're going to be under a curse. Now, this is an unfortunate teaching because it's under the law. It's under the Old Testament. We have so many scriptures. I'm not going to show you them all because there's so many that teaches us that we are no longer under the law. We are no longer bound by the law, but we are now under grace. We are now saved by faith and not by works. So here, Galatians says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. That's Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Here, also, there is further reading. For those of you who would like to further read and further understand exactly what this means, well, you read, if you read Galatians chapter 2 all the way through chapter 5, also Romans chapter 3 all the way through chapter 7, it talks about the law and now our new relationship with the law and how we are no longer under law but under grace. Those chapters spell it out very, very clearly on where we are. Now, some people would say, because I've heard it said, well, tithing is different. Tithing is different. You know why? Because tithing was before the law. Actually, Abraham was the first one to tithe, so it's nothing to do with the law. That's what they would say. Well, I only just, uh, I forgot to put the scripture up, but it's in Galatians as well, that the Apostle Paul dealing with uh, the issue of circumcision. Because in, while the Apostle Paul was preaching, there were other preachers coming around behind him after he would leave a town or a city. 
these preachers were called Judaizers. And while they were preaching Christ and Him crucified, they were preaching that gospel, but they were adding something to it. They were teaching the Christians that Paul's message wasn't enough for you. They were preach, teaching the Christians that they also must be circumcised in order to truly be saved. But Paul, again, when you read these chapters in Galatians, I, I, I urge you to do that so that you'll have a better understanding. Paul told the Galatians that you are no longer under the law. Circumcision saves no one. And that Christians, especially Gentile Christians, were not expected to be circumcised. Guess what? Circumcision also became, came before the law. Circumcision also came with Abraham. So if circumcision came with Abraham and the Apostle Paul says that you're not required to be circumcised in order to be saved, guess what? The same remains true about tithing. Tithing also came with Abraham and you are no longer required to tithe in your giving to the Lord. Now, again, apologies if I stepped on toes. You're welcome to speak to me afterwards and just ask more questions if you like. Or just give me a big hug and tell me you love me if I hurt your feelings. Sorry. So... Now, again, again, how we should not give. We finish with this. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 8, 8 says, I am not commanding you. This is, he's sending around and he's reminding them about the gift that they've said they're going to give. But he said, I'm not commanding you. This is not a command. This is an offering. This is a free will offering. Oftentimes you'll hear Jerry or someone say, we're sending around, we're taking up a free will offering. It's free will. Why? Because the scripture says that you give what you have decided in your heart to give between you and God. It's a free will offering. And we're not commanded on how much or what we are to give in scripture. Now, saying that, again, I, didn't, I don't know if I put this up there, but saying that while we're going on to how Christians should give, I'm not telling anyone not to tithe either. I would never tell anyone not to tithe. If that's what you have decided in your heart to do, then that's what you should do. Do it freely and lovingly and, and cheerfully as we see. If you want to tithe and you feel, that's a number that I just feel really pleased about and happy about, and I just want to give 10% of my finances every week, every month, or ever how you want to do it, and that's what you want to do, praise be to God, then you should do that. But no one should feel compelled no one should feel uh, uh, commanded that that's what they should do. Now here we see how Christians should give. It says here in chapter 8 verse 5, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Amen. As a believer, before we do anything, shouldn't we come to the Lord? Shouldn't we seek God before we make any decisions on what we do in our life? Yeah, bring everything we want to do to Him. Lord, I'm not sure about this. This is how much I have. This is how much uh, I need. This is how much I'm giving to Caesar. And this is the, you know, but Lord, I have this kind of number on my heart. I'd like to give this much, but I'm not sure. And just bring it to the Lord and pray and let the Lord just, just guide and direct you. He's given us His Holy Spirit. Amen. And so let, let God help you. That's what He wants to do. So this is a great 
a great example of what the Macedonian church has showed us. Before they gave themselves to the apostles, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Hallelujah. And we see that there in chapter 8. Each of you should give what you have decided in your own heart to give. That's what Christians should do. That's what we should give. That's how we should give. What we have decided to give. And once you decide to do that, again, some of us may struggle that when it comes Sunday morning and you want to put that into the offering plate, sometimes you might feel, oh man, should I, should I, should I, should I, should I, should I? Well, the scripture says that you have decided to do, go ahead and do that. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. Why? What is that saying about being a cheerful giver? Well, someone who is giving to God from their whole heart. Their whole heart. If there's any reluctance in your heart, you're not going to be cheerful. You might put a big old face on and think, yes, I'm happy, I'm doing this. I've been to churches where they like to dance when they're giving the offering. And you can dance all you want. But if you can still be reluctant in your giving. But you can be the best dancer. And everyone thinks, hey, he's a cheerful giver. But in his heart, he's not. So it's a heart condition. And God loves a cheerful giver. So that you have decided to give, give. And you'll be cheerful, cheerful afterwards. Yep, that's God's promise. And again, I knew I threw it in there somewhere. And you can tithe if you want to. It's what you've decided in your own heart. Praise God. Again, how Christians should give. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Here's the wonderful words of Christ himself. When we give. See, he's not saying, well, if you feel like giving, you know. No, he's assuming that we're going to give. This is what people of God do. People of God give. Children of God give. People of the Lord give. That's just what we do. Why? Because God gives. And we're going to look at that even more. I don't want to jump into that because that's a preaching point right there. So I, I want to wait. How Christians should give. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So if you want to... If you want to uh, so sparingly. See, you can still, I, I like how it says here that you can still sow sparingly, but still not be reluctant or feel compulsed. Do you understand? You're still giving cheerfully. Doesn't say that your sparingly giving is not a cheerful giving, does it? Doesn't say that. It just says if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you will reap generously. But one thing it does not say is that if you sow sparingly, you're going to be under a curse. doesn't say that. doesn't say that whatever, if whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sow, uh, sorry, so let me go back. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly because you're under a curse. It doesn't say that. 
It doesn't say whoever sows generously will also reap generously because you're doing good. It doesn't say that. It just simply says that whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. It doesn't even suggest that you can sow sparingly and it's because you have a reluctant heart or because you're not a cheerful giver. It doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say that at all. What it may suggest is that we need to keep coming to the Lord. Keep coming first to the Lord to help us with our giving. Perhaps that's what it's suggesting. Look here in Matthew 6, 25, 27. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? According to Jesus, what could stop us from being cheerful givers? Worrying about what we're going to eat, worrying about what we're going to drink, worrying about what we're going to wear, Worrying about our lives. Are we going to make it through the day? Are we going to make it to next week? I got a headache. Oh, is this could be the one that takes me away. Worrying about this. Worrying about that. That's the one thing Jesus says that will stop you from being a cheerful giver. Because Jesus says, don't worry about those things. Why? God is able to bless you abundantly, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We don't have to worry about giving. Paul says in chapter 9, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Notice it doesn't say you will abound in loads and loads of money. doesn't say that. doesn't say that. It says that you will abound in every good work. You will abound that in all things and at all times, having all that you need. doesn't say all that you want. It says all that you need. And that you'll be able to abound in every good work. Those are the works, you know, when I think of good works, you know, God, when we're even looking at this concept of money and works, do you know that God doesn't need our money? Did you know that? God doesn't need your money. Your neighbor needs your money. Your neighbor needs your money. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs your good works. We're not going to impress God by our money and our works. Our neighbor needs those things. But God promises that he will provide all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That if we give to honor him and to glorify him, he will provide all of our needs. We don't have to worry when we're giving for the things of God. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You know what I love about this is that he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, he will supply and increase your store of seed. And I love how it's called, you know, seed because we're still to continue to give. 
whether it be money, whether it be our time, whether it be our good works, whatever it is that we can give to our brothers and sisters at home or abroad, we should be looking to give, whatever it is, whatever it is. And God is the one who's going to provide us with everything we, need. we, we, we want to give. God will provide us with the seed to give. Amen? Now, why should Christians give? Why should Christians give? Well, in 2 Corinthians 9, it says, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanksgiving to God. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, that should be enough right there to encourage us to give. Knowing that God is blessed and, 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 and worshipped and, and he is given praise and glory through our giving. To God be the glory. That's what we want. We want our money to go to places like Pakistan. We want those believers there to be so built up, so blessed, so encouraged that on their Sunday morning service, their Wednesday night prayer meeting, their Sunday evening service, whenever they gather together, that their hearts are so full of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord God Almighty. That's what we want. And know what's going to happen. That when they do, when they, they gather together and began to praise and shout glory and praise to God, people are going to hear. People are going to say, what's that noise? Why are you so cheerful? Why? Because God is good. He has done a great work in our lives. He has given us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have everything that we need. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. Brothers and sisters, if for no other reason, this is enough that God would be glorified and praised through our, through our giving. Our giving is an act of worship because God and God alone gets the glory when we give. Again, why should Christians give? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Again, this scripture has been twisted in so many ways, made to think, made... To, uh, that like it's all about money. This is nothing to do with money. This is nothing to do with money at all. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich. What is that talking about? It's talking about he, before he came and took on the flesh of man, he was enthroned on high. Do you understand? He is Lord God Almighty. And he set all of that aside and took on the wretched flesh of man like us. Except his flesh wasn't wretched because in him there was no sin. But he humbled himself, the Bible says. He humbled himself. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what it means that Christ became poor so that we might become rich. Again, if we need anything else, another reason that we should want to give to the service of the Lord, to God's people, to glorify Him, is because of what He has done for us. It's because of what He has done for you. It's because He is what He's done for me. He has done everything, everything that we could ever need or desire. 
He has provided for us in more ways than we will ever know. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, then He has provided for you eternal life. This world is not your home. This world is not your home. Regardless of what you're going through, sometimes we're going through the valleys, sometimes we're on the mountains, but there's one thing that is assured of us, is that one day we are going to be with Him in glory. And even the mountaintops here on earth is nothing compared to heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. There's an old saying, I forget who said it, I think it may have been a a great preacher by the name of J.C. Ryle, that he said that for a Christian living here on earth, this is the closest you will ever get to hell. This is the closest you will ever get to hell. But, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have placed all of your hope in and having a great life here today on this earth. You've put all your hope into trying to achieve greatness for yourself, trying to achieve money, trying to achieve possessions, trying to achieve properties, trying to achieve fame. If you put all of your hope in those things that are found here on earth, even if you were to achieve them and you don't have Christ, J.C. Ryle says that earth is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. It's the closest you'll ever get. My plea for you today, if you don't know Christ, don't be satisfied with this. I don't care what you have or what your dreams are. Don't let that be your ultimate goal. Make Christ your goal today because He has made a way that we might have everything and we might have life that we might have it even more abundantly with Him for eternity. Amen? Praise God. Let's pray.